One of the best books I have read in the last couple of years is a book called Unbroken. Uh, there's also a movie by the same title. Maybe you've seen it. It is the story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. Uh, Louis Zamperini, I got a picture of him here. Louis Zamperini, at the age of 19, qualified to be an Olympic athlete. He was a runner. He was one of the fastest people in the world, and he was in the 1936 Olympics. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Um, but that's not why he's famous. Uh, after that, he took his fame home. The war began, and, he, uh, and he, he, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps. He became a bombardier with a, a group that was working in the Pacific Theater. So if you know about that, they're kind of dealing over the Pacific Ocean and dealing with what was happening with Japan and stuff like that. And through that, because of his fame as an Olympian, he actually gained some additional fame as a war hero. Uh, and it was really crazy because here's another picture uh, in one... In, in several of his outings, this is one of the bombers he was in. Those, that's a, a bullet shell through the side of one of the planes he was in. And this image and others like it were on the fronts of newspapers across America as the great Louis Zamperina, the great Olympian, was now a war hero and he helped to raise war bonds and all these kind of things. That isn't why he's famous and that's not why his story sticks out today. All of the fame in the world, all of the uh, excellent experiences he had could not have prepared him for what happened to him over the Pacific Ocean in 1942. His bomber was shot down over the open ocean. He crashed. He was the only survivor of the whole crew. He was left floating on one of this emergency life rafts, barely bigger than he was. And he was floating on that raft for 47 days. In fact, a lot of people believe that that might be the record that anyone has ever survived at sea. 47 days. And that wasn't the worst of it. As he drifted closer and closer to mainland Asia, he was eventually picked up by a Japanese ship and he became a prisoner of war. In fact, for the better part of three years, or more than three years, I think, he was a prisoner of war in a Japanese POW camp. Now, the last place you wanted to be during World War II was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Uh, some estimates show that in, for, in Germany and in Italy, for example, uh, the prisoner of war camps, only about 1% of prisoners died in camp. And that's a lot of people, but it's a small percentage. But in the Japanese prisoner of war camp, closer to 40% of the prisoners died because the conditions were terrible. They, they did a lot of torture. There was a lot of hard labor. Uh, Louis was forced to work daily, hard labor with barely any food. Uh, he was brutally beaten and tortured on the regular. He was treated as a guinea pig for all kinds of medical experimentation by the government at that time that made him very, very sick. He was forced to do degrading things by this one particular prison guard. And I'm not going to get into the nasty stuff, but like for just one example, there was a time when the prison guard uh, made Louis lick his boots after he had stepped in human waste. You know, this is the kind of torture and degrading stuff he would have to go through. And like day after day, the prisoners are like, can I even survive another day? Can I even make it? Yet somehow, defying all odds, I guess, Louis survived. And the war ended in September, and in September uh, of 1945, Louis was brought home. Now, this would be what we'd hope would be like, yay, Louis's home, and it's a big, and it was, and there were parades, and he was a hero, and there were interviews set up all over the nation, and people wanted to know this guy, and they wanted to have him on the radio and interview them for his, their newspapers. But it was not the end of the torment for Louis. He came home, and he suffered from some severe PTSD. Um, in the process, he's trying to heal. He meets a nice girl, and uh, they 
try to settle down. They get married and they try to live the normal life, but he just couldn't do it. The pain, the agony, the torture, the mental stress that he had in his, his life was just unbearable. And so he, he turned to alcohol to, to drink himself to sleep every single night. He becomes just a, a terrible alcoholic and it just becomes a really, really hard part of his life. And eventually, uh, in the middle of the night, one night, um, he was having this nightmare, uh, and it was like a flashback of some things that had happened in the, the prisoner of war camp, and, um, and he woke up, and he realized he was choking his wife nearly to death, and she was screaming because he was just mentally unstable, and things weren't right for him, and he hated his life. His wife wanted a divorce, and all he cared about was sitting alone and drinking himself to death. He said, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to move forward? How am I going to get out of this? And so he developed a plan. This was Louis' plan. He said, okay, the people that brought this to my life were those prison guards that made my life a tormented living hell for three years. This is my plan. I'm going to fly over to Japan. I'm going to find them, and I'm going to kill them, like the movie line. And that was his plan. So he began to plan. He began to research where these people were. He began to decide that he's going to go over there. He's going to do these things. Now, I've never been in a situation like that. Odds are really good you haven't either. There's a good chance that many of us have experienced some really bad situations. We've been really hurt by people. But here's the thing. I don't know that a lot of us could really fault Louis for thinking the way he was thinking. He went through some really hard things and like, what do you even do in all of that? I think that we've all been hurt by people and we've all wrestled with this desire to get them back. I remember in elementary school, I had, I had some vis, vision issues. I wore uh, glasses. I was the only like second grader with bifocals and all kinds of like weird things. Yeah, you laugh. Ha ha. Um, no, it's okay. I'm fine. Um, and, but also I wore like, uh, I wore eye patch over one eye because I had a, 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 an eye that the muscle was weak. And so they put it over the strong eye so the weak eye could get stronger. It's great for eye health. It's not cool for your self-esteem or your popularity. Um, and so I've told that story before. I was like the pirate, you know, whatever, had an eye patch. Uh, and, you know, kids, kids are mean. Kids are mean. And I remember coming home some days and being like, I'm going to fight that kid <laughs> when I get back on the school bus tomorrow. I'm going to fight that kid for the things that he said to me. And I think we've all plotted revenge. And we've all plotted, you know, how am I going to get back? And, and how am I going to, like, overcome this pain? We're going to get back to Louis in just a minute, and just at the very end of our time here today. And we're going to get back to maybe the struggle that you've had through the pain that you've dealt with. But we have been in this series, this is our fifth week, the final week of a series through the life of a guy named Joseph. We're calling it a God chaser story. And our, our goal is to look at the life of this guy who we read about in the Old Testament of the Bible and we see that he overcomes incredible odds and he ends up going down in history. He has this legacy of being this godly person who just leaves this huge mark on humanity. And how did he do it? What does it look like for us to be God chasers in our own lives? And so if you've got a Bible today, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 42. And so while you turn there, Genesis 42, you can look it up on your phone. Go ahead. If you don't have a Bible with you, I want to remind you, we do have them on the shelf right there by the front door. Uh, if you want to grab one now, you can, or grab one before you leave. We want to make sure that everybody's got a good readable version of the Bible. Uh, but we meet this guy, Joseph, and I want to kind of give you a little bit of a background. I'm not going to recap his whole story. Patrick did that last week pretty good. Uh, I do encourage you to go listen to the other podcasts, if you haven't, of this series to kind of get the full picture. But when I look at Joseph's life, it actually is very similar to Louis Zamperini. Because Joseph starts out kind of, things are great, you know, things are going fine. In fact, he experiences some, some fame and some success and some prosperity. And then something happens and everything goes downhill. 
With Joseph, it was that he was the favorite son of his father who was a fairly wealthy uh, herdsman, and he uh, was, was, was well-liked by his dad, and he got everything he needed, um, but he had these brothers. And if you remember his story, his brothers were the turning point for him. He kind of made them mad, and <laughs> they you know, faked his death, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. So where we've seen Joseph's story go so far, he spent about 10 years as a slave under this guy named Potiphar. It was a fairly decent situation, but still he wasn't a free man. And then he was framed for a crime that he didn't commit, which landed him in prison for an additional three years. And hit after hit after hit come to this guy Joseph. But all the while, he was faithful to God. And so we, along this journey, been like, how do you keep being faithful when I hit after hit after hit keep coming? And we even see spots in Joseph's life where we can see God working and providing for him. What can we learn from that? Well, we finally left him off last week where he had been in prison and through some amazingly providential circumstances, Joseph gets to meet the Pharaoh of Egypt, the king, the ruler of the region. And because he has this gift for interpreting dreams, Pharaoh's been having this crazy dream and one thing leads to another and Joseph gets the opportunity to interpret these dreams, and Pharaoh really likes what he says. In fact, it's, it's a prediction that there's going to be this famine in the land, and they're going to have to do some things to prepare for the famine. And he's got some good ideas, and Pharaoh's like, you know what? I like you, man. And he promotes him from a prisoner to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, the most unlikeliest of events. He goes from rags to riches, from poverty to power like that. And in our text today, we're going to pick him up. We, he has been nine years in this situation. Like he's been the, this, this, the, the scripture calls him uh, the governor of the area. So he's like a governor in Egypt, and he's been nine years in this, this area. Uh, in his position, he was responsible for the first seven years, which was predicted by the dream, of plenty when the crops and the rainfall, and there was going to be plenty of grain, and he, he, he organized this whole like storage thing where they had silos, and they kept it all dry and good and ready to destroy distribute that seven years of plenty has gone and now we're into the first two years of basically famine and it's a pretty severe famine not only in Egypt but all of the Middle Eastern region but Joseph has prepared and so Egypt as a result has plenty and now not just the Egyptian people but people from all over the Middle East are making their way into Egypt because they heard they got grain in Egypt let's go get us some and guess who needs grain? You remember Joseph's dad, Jacob? More specifically, do you remember his 10 older brothers who tormented him, faked his death, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery? You know what they really like right about now? A sandwich. <laughs> they really wanted some grain, and there was only one place in their area to get some. And so we're going to pick up our story in Genesis chapter 42. Starting at verse 1, it says, when Jacob learned, that's his dad, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he says to his sons, I love this, this is such a dad phrase, why do you just keep looking at each other, he continued, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt, go down there and buy some for us, and so, so that we may live and not die. Plot twist, all this time we've been feeling sorry for Joseph, and what's crazy is all along the line, you don't get any mention of what's happening back home at the ranch. And now we see it. They're hungry. And now these murdering, conniving, dirty brothers, they're making their way down to Egypt. Everyone except for their youngest brother, Benjamin, okay? 
remember that. Tuck that little fact away because it's going to be important later. Benjamin's not with them, but all the other 10 older brothers are there. And apparently, in order to get like some of Pharaoh's grain stash, there was one dude you had to talk to, Joseph. So quick math here on this. Okay, it's, it's been 23 years since they last saw their brother. He was around 17 years old when all this happened. So now he's about 40, making some of his oldest brothers in their 50s, maybe early 60s now. It was a long time ago, and people lived longer, and it's a different situation. So these, these guys look different. They don't recognize each other at first when they see one another, especially Joseph, who is now basically an Egyptian. He probably doesn't have his beard anymore. He's probably wearing Egyptian-type clothing. And so that's the pivotal part of understanding this story. We're going to pick up in verse 6. It says, now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them at first. Where do you come from, he said. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food, like everybody else here. So he knows them. They don't know him. <laughs> so, so you need me now, huh? I got your grain right here. You want, you want some grain? Right? I mean, what would you have done? Um, so my kids, they love to play pranks on me and each other. And so it was several years ago, maybe three years ago, my kids come to me and they say, hey, dad, you want to start a prank war with us? I quickly taught them a few things about pranks. <laughs> Rule one, number one, you don't tell people that you're starting a prank war. <laughs> you just prank them and then you pretend like you have no idea what happened. That's how you prank appropriately. Rule number two. If you mess with the big dogs, you might get bit. I'm the big dog in case you missed this. And so my daughter apparently only listened to half of that advice. And so uh, I got to give her credit. She struck first and she was stealthy. And so what she did was awesome. It was pretty creative. Okay. So I'm just going to tell a story. I'm in the shower. Okay. I I bathe. Okay. And I'm taking a shower and I come out and I go to my room in a towel like we do. And I go to open the drawer that normally contains my underwear no underwear. They're gone. They're just every, every last shred. And I'm like, this is, this is strange. And so you do what you do when you're in a family. Has anybody seen my underwear? <laughs> no. Then I hear like, <clears throat> my, my daughter still has the worst poker face ever. Stick my head out the door. Savannah, have you seen my underwear? <clears throat> no. <clears throat> And she was like seven years old at the time and uh, also wasn't very good at hiding things. And so I worked it out. I worked it out pretty quick. But here's the thing. I like when you are the pranker, the person doing the prank, it is advantageous for your prey to not have a clue that you know was about to go down. Now, Joseph's situation wasn't a prank. What was done to him was far from prank nature. If this is a prank, it was like the worst prank ever. <laughs> 23 years later. Um, but still... He's got this moment, this opportunity of blindside revenge. What would you have done? At the very least, I'm thinking, you want some food? Uh, no soup for you. <laughs> no. In fact, I've got a special room in the dungeon for you. I've do- hey, guards, take them away. You know the room. Yeah, my old room. Yeah, take them down there. What do we do wrong? I just don't like you. Go away. Like at the very least, 
And, and would he have been wrong for that? I don't know that he would. Like, I don't, he's not, he is a government official, and they did commit what should be a crime if it wasn't. Like, I don't know how it all works, but at the very least, he's got a right to do something. And so, I, to be honest, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what Joseph's initial thoughts were. In fact, we see him, and it looks like through the rest of the story, he's kind of working it out in his heart. I think he's really like, he may have wanted to struck fast and hard, I don't know. Um, but revenge is hard to resist, isn't it? And this is where Joseph finds himself. So jo- Joseph's kind of wrestling with this for a while. And so he's going to run his brothers through a couple of tests first. And I like what he does. In fact, there's some wisdom in this. Before we just blow up, uh, we need to step back and be like, let's evaluate. So he runs a few tests. After all, it has been 23 years. So the first thing he does is he accuses them. You need to remember this if anybody wrongs you. He accuses them of being foreign spies. Just like the 1950s, that's just what we did. Everyone's a spy, and let's just be angry at everybody. And so, that's it, you're a spy, and, and this is their response. You see it in verse 13. They say, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. This is very interesting. The youngest is now with our father and is no more. Oh, sorry, the youngest is now with our father. That's Benjamin. Remember, I told you that would be important. And one is no more. This is interesting. They don't have to tell this random Egyptian official that they used to have this one brother, but he is no more. Uh, and can you imagine me and Joseph hearing that? Like, ooh, okay, I'm no more, huh? <laughs> Interesting that that's how you tell that story. So he throws them in jail for uh, three days. That's his initial response. My guess is it's like taking a deep breath and counting to 20. You know, I got to work this out. And then after three days, he says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you go home. But I still think you're spies. You say you got a younger brother at home? Go get him and bring him back to me. But you're going to have to leave some collateral. One of you's got to stay in prison until you get back. That's their only option. They don't get any grain. They need grain. Okay. So Simon is the brother that stays back, and the rest go, and they go without any grain, and they go to get their brother Benjamin. And they say to one another, this is verse 21, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. Who are they talking about? Joseph in the pit. But we would not listen. This is why this distress has come on us. It's interesting that after 23 years, they still carry the guilt of what they had done. Joseph isn't done with his brothers yet, though. He's got this test for them. This is kind of the phase two of the test. So he sends them on their way. Before they go, though, he secretly has one of his servants fill their bags with grain and silver. Now, these aren't like book bags. It's not like, wow, my bag is extra heavy. I'm guessing they had some kind of like donkeys or beast of burden of some kind that are carrying their bags. So they don't notice it until they stop for the night and they're unpacking their bed rolls or whatever you do. And they're like, guys, do you have grain in your bags? We didn't pay for this. And then they start seeing there's extra silver in our bags too. And so they begin to talk amongst themselves and they're like, I bet you this Egyptian governor guy who's trying to frame us as spies, he's also got us involved in something he wants us to make look like thieves too. What do we do? So they don't know what to do. So they run home to their dad. They finally get home and they tell their dad, Jacob, everything that's happened. They're like, man, we went to this, uh, this governor and he didn't give us any food. He said that we were spies and he sent us back and they kept Simon and he sent us with all this extra grain and he said silver and I, oh, they're going to get us. And what do we do? Here's all we got to do, dad. Can we just get Benjamin and can we just take him home back to the guy, please, and just show him and we can get our grain and we can get all worked out. And you would think the dad would be like, yeah, that's reasonable. Let's just, let's just get this over with. Instead, Jacob is angry and he says, no, 
No, you can't take Benjamin. I've lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simon. He's in jail somewhere in Egypt. Who knows if we'll ever see him again? No way you're taking Benjamin with you. You can't have my other son. You stay here. My decision's final. So they do. They just stay home. Time passes. They make a lot of bread. They eat all the grain. It's still a famine. And they get to a point where they go, okay, the only way for us to get food for us, for our cattle, our, our livestock, whatever, I don't know how, how to law work, but the only way for us to get food, we got to go back to Egypt. And we all know who we got to talk to when we get there, to the decisions made. Okay, we take Benjamin. And we go. So they make the trip. Now, now, this is interesting. I love the suspense. I love the suspense that Joseph puts them in. Like, he doesn't punish them, but oh, does he punish them. <laughs> He's just like, and I don't know how long that was. Maybe it said, and I missed it. So if you saw that somewhere, let me know. But there's a period of time. They eat all the grain. And they're just like in suspense. And then they come back. Now, they go first to, for, to Joseph's secretary, and they have a conversation with the secretary, and uh, they say, listen, we, we, we found this silver in our sacks, and we found this grain, and we didn't pay for it, but we don't know who put it in there, and it wasn't us, but we got our brother, and can we just get our brother? We got our other brother, and can, if we just make this happen real quick, that'd be great. And I'm imagining that Joseph's secretary had like a little post-it note on his desk, and it said, if you ever see 10 flustered Hebrew men <laughs> asking about their brother, call me, and he's like, Oh, yeah, the boss is going to want to talk to you guys. And so he calls Joseph in. He's like, Joseph does the craziest thing, okay? Joseph, he doesn't flip out on them this time. He's not like, aha, I knew you were spies. He goes, friends, come on. And it's the weirdest thing. I read this a couple times this week, and it, I was like, is it not weird? It's weird. He invites them to his house and hosts them for dinner. Okay, this would be equivalent. You go to the DMV. And you're trying to get your driver's license worked out. And instead of just fixing your driver's license issue, the, that lady that looks a little bit angry at you, she's like, you know what, let's grab lunch. And you're like, okay. You don't tell her no, because you need your driver's license. And so they're really confused. And Joseph is the best host. And he gives them all this good food. In fact, he gives Benjamin, I love this, the five extra portions, I think is what it says, which is the traditional way of calling him a guest of honor, which is kind of cool because he's like, that was his little brother and his brother didn't throw him into a pit like the other guys did. And so um, this all happens and they are very, very confused. In fact, he even they, they're like, listen, we're sorry about the extra silver that was in our bag. We don't know how that got there. He's like, silver, what silver? Man, your, your God must have blessed you and just put silver in your bag. And these guys are so confused. You were so angry before and now you're so nice. Can we please get our brother and some grain and go home, okay, please? And so let's look back at the text. Uh, we're in chapter 43 now, verse 27. He asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. And as he looked about, he saw his brother Benjamin from his own mother's son. If you remember, there are multiple mothers involved in this family. That was his only biological brother, Benjamin, his own mother's son. And he asked, is this your younger brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. And deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. And after he washed his face, like it must have been ugly crying, you know, after he washed his face, he came out, he controlled himself, and he said, serve the food. I love the Bible. Some of the sentences they use are great. Serve the food. 
keep it together, Joseph. Like, he's not ready to reveal himself to his brothers yet. There's some questions he still needs answered. He needs to know, how have you been treating my brother, Benjamin? How is my dad? Have you been taking care of him? What kind of men are you now, 23 years later? And so after dinner, Joseph sends them on their way. Uh, He lets them get some grain, but he's got one final test for them. This one's a doozy. He has one of his servants, again, this time, take a silver cup, his own, Joseph's own personal silver cup, and slip it into Benjamin's bag. And so that as they're leaving town, there's like a, like a, a road check, and there's some palace officials there, and they're like, excuse me, sir, license and registration. Yeah, you know, the uh, pharaoh said, or the, the governor says that he's missing a silver cup, and uh, we're just looking for the people that have it. Seems like uh, you might have it. Can we look in your bags? And they're like, sure. Yeah, well, we got nothing. We, just, we were just at his house having dinner. Yeah, he's a friend of ours. And so they check the bags. The brothers say, this is before they check the bags. They say, what are you talking about? The brothers respond. Verse 40, uh, chapter 44, verse 7, if you're following along. He said, what are you talking about? We are your servants. We would never do such a thing. And they're so confident that in verse, four, in verse 9, they say, I tell you what, if you find his cup among any of us, let that man die. All the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. Now, of course, we know what they found in Benjamin's bag. They were very surprised to find it there. Benjamin, it wasn't me. What, what, we, listen, this is a big must understand. This happened last time we were here. Like, what's going on? And they're very flustered and very confused. And here's the thing. I, I, I'm wondering what the test was here. And uh, I was reading through some stuff, and this is, this is what somebody said that I thought was great. Perhaps Joseph's test here was this. I want it in Benjamin's bag because I want to see are my brothers going to just bail on Benjamin and run? Oh, it was his fault. Yeah, we're gone. Are they going to stick with him? Because they bailed on me. Will they stick with him? And I love the integrity of these guys at this point. They actually say, no. No, we, we, we can't leave Benjamin behind. Yeah, let's, let's go back to town. Let's work this out. And they're going to stand before Joseph again. <laughs> and he's like, you have my silver cup in your bag? Yeah, we don't know how I got there. It was Judah who speaks up. And he gives this impassioned plea. And I'm going to basically summarize the last half of uh, chapter 44. Please read it on your own and, and dig into the details. But it's in a couple of sentences. It's basically what Judah says. He says, sir, we cannot go back without our brother Benjamin. Our father had another brother who is no more. And we made a promise to take care of this brother. It would crush our father if we don't go back with this brother. I don't know if you're following the details of this story, but this is huge. It was 23 years ago that this same guy, Judah, the guy who gave this impassioned plea, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And here he stands, given the chance to do it a different way, he chooses the right way this time. Joseph sees that. And he can't contain himself anymore. Verse, uh, this is now chapter 45, verse 1. It says, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, like outside the door. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. You expect them to be like, Joseph! But then you're like, oh yeah. Yeah, they're 
they'd probably be pretty scared of this guy because he's powerful now. Can you imagine that level of surprise? What? But you know, you know, they look into his eyes. They see the shape of his body. They're like, yeah, you're definitely Joseph. How did we not see it before? They're confused. They're afraid. Verse 4 says, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me, which I'm sure they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. I imagine that's when he's like, look at me. Look at my face. We got the same face. <laughs> we got the same dad. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. He says, God sent me here. I've been through a lot. But now I see that God has actually used this in a pretty powerful way. Now, he's not saying that God, like, caused them to do the evil thing that put him there. Scripture is clear about that. One that I love to look at is James chapter 1, verse 13. It says that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted uh, by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God isn't like, let me do evil things in the world so that good may occur. But it is this, that when bad happens in the world, God's like, I can work with that. I am the creator after all. I can work with that. And he takes often evil things that people do and he turns them into good. For starters, God used Joseph to save countless thousands of lives through this whole thing he did with the grain and his position. Like, that's amazing. That by itself is amazing. But the bigger story is this. As the story plays out, if you know the rest of the story of, of the nation of Israel, basically Joseph is reunited with his dad and his family. All the brothers move back to Egypt and then they prosper there in Egypt. And they grow and they grow and they grow to eventually where their family becomes a nation. And then you get all the way into the book of Exodus, which is the next book in the Bible that you find, and there's the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and the nation of Israel and the beginnings of this nation that eventually Jesus would come out of. And none of that would happen the way that it did had Joseph decided when they bowed down before him the first time to live in bitterness and say, off with your head, off with your head, off with your head, off with your head. But instead that he took back, he calculated his moves and he asked himself, what does it mean for me to honor God in this situation? You know, our goal for studying this story, this whole five weeks, has been to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a God chaser? And there are a lot of great lessons we learn from Joseph, but probably the most important one, we don't get from Joseph until the very end here that we landed it today. And I don't know the most articulate way to say it, but here's what I've got. This is what I landed on is what may be one of the biggest pieces we learned from Joseph's story, and that's this. We've got to trust God's way especially when life gets hard. And so I don't know what kind of hurt you've experienced or what kind of situation or circumstance you're going through right now, but it is especially in the darkness that we've got to keep our eyes up, head on a swivel, looking for the light of God. It's there. Sometimes it's blocked by the circumstances. It's there. We've got to trust God's way, especially when life gets hard. And that's what we see Joseph do time after time after time. Every dip in the roller coaster ride, you see him down there. And in the text it says, but God, but Joseph honored God and what he did. And it's a hard perspective to find. And it takes faith. It's like if you're just getting started in a faith journey recently, maybe today, you know, it's, it won't be today. It probably, hopefully it will be. That'd be great. But it probably won't be today that you find enough faith to know exactly what next step to take. That's part of being in community with one another as the church. We get to lean on the faith of our brothers and sisters who have been there. 
We get to hear the stories of how people played things out, and we get to see how they trusted God and how that worked out for them. And that is our goal. That is our mission. That is how we chase God in what we're doing. Even when we're in the darkness, God is still good. Do you remember our guy, Louis Zamperini? We talked about him at the beginning. Olympic athlete, war hero, POW. He did decide to go back to Japan and try to find the people who tortured him. But right before he was going to take his trip, his wife said, hey, I'm going to an event. There's this guy speaking. I would love for you to come listen with me. So he goes to what ends up being one of the Billy Graham crusades. He listens to Billy Graham preach. If you don't know who Billy Graham is, I mean, he's just like this prolific uh, preacher of the last century, and like thousands of people heard about God's love and grace through the messages that he taught. And it was that night that whatever it was that Billy was saying, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't Billy. It was God's spirit moving in that place. Got a hold of Louis. And Louis was just cut to the heart. And in all of his pain and his alcoholism and his PTSD and his hate for those prison guards, Louis looked up and he said yes to Jesus. And that night he started a, a walk with Jesus. And God changed Louis that day. He understood the love and forgiveness of God. and He understood that if God can forgive me, I can forgive other people. That night, Louis finally understood. And like he planned, he went to Japan. And he did hunt down all of those guards, as many as he could find. But instead of trying to choke them, he just let them know that he forgave them. One by one by one. And it was a lot of work hunting them down. Many of them were prisoners of war because they were war criminals. And uh, not prisoners of war, but they were in prison because of war crimes. And the, the last person that he really wanted to meet was this particularly evil prison guard, the one that, if you read the book, that most of the story is about how evil that guy was. And he finally found him. And he just was dreading it, and he was like sick in his stomach over it, but he said, I've got to go talk to this guy, and I've got to just tell him about forgiveness, and I've got to let him know that I'm not going to hold it against him. And guess what happened? That guy wouldn't talk to him. He refused. He refused to meet with Louis. He said he wouldn't do it. And you know what? That's how it goes sometimes. We, we can't hope for everybody else to decide that they're going to get on the same page that we're on. But you know what it did do? It set Louis free. Because he was able to move past that that day. And he comes back home and he dedicates the rest of his life to using his fame as an Olympic runner, as a war hero, as a survivor of a POW camp. He uses his fame to make the name of Jesus famous. And he goes around speaking about grace and forgiveness and telling his story. You know, Joseph's story was a roller coaster. And maybe your story has been a roller coaster. But Joseph knew what it meant to honor God and trust him even in the darkness. And years later, Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob passes away. And all the brothers are terrified because they're like, oh, shoot. Because they're thinking that like maybe Joseph's just been kind to them for the sake of their father. And so the father passes away and they come to and they're like, look, look, our father's dead. Please still, still have mercy on us. And Jacob says this, and I think these two sentences are like the defining mark of Joseph's life. Genesis 50, 19 through 20. It says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And I just wondered, have you trusted God with your brokenness, with your temptation, with your dysfunctional family, with your pain, with your bitterness, with the people that you need to forgive? Have you taken that before him, even in the darkest times? I'm asking you right now, if you haven't done that, make today the day that you turn it over to him. Maybe you want to talk to somebody before you leave today. Maybe you want to accept Christ and become a Christian. We'll talk about that in just a second. But make today your day. What may have been intended for evil, maybe it was the evil that you did, maybe it was the evil that someone else did that affected your life. Whatever has been done intended for evil, God can make right. And he can turn to his good. And you can overcome and make your life about chasing him. Let me pray for us this morning.